we're continuing to look at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is such an important book because its intention is to give courage, confidence, help, and hope for struggling through life. In particular, struggling to be a Christian when dealing with opposition. And each of the paragraphs that we have looked at has revealed a different aspect of how we are to endure and how we are to remain strong. And and, and I'm loving how the writer of Hebrews just builds upon each of these elements and each of these arguments and descriptions about who Jesus is and why that is so valuable to our lives. And and in these six verses, that is certainly true. Uh, In in particular, in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, I particularly love this because it is very logical. And I'm going to show you the flow of that. And because I am highly left-brained, accountant-trained, and all of that, I like things in a very linear fashion. And that's what happens in these these six verses. So the big answer is not in verse 1. It's at verse 6. But you have to follow the flow of what the writer is doing to appreciate the weight of the argument and then the help uh, and the hope that we have. In particular, chapters 3 and 4 start a new section of the idea of rest. We've been talking about here is... Excuse me, here is the help that we need to be able to endure. And he's going to begin to talk about uh, in these chapters the rest that is available to us. But before he can quite get into that, he lays something very central to describe this relationship that we have with God. So notice verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, if I could just stop there for a minute, that's really summing up all of chapter 2. Remember, chapter 2 had some pretty big bombshell ideas that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And we're like, okay, that's amazing that we would be put into that kind of relationship with Him. This is our heavenly calling that we are enjoying. In fact, to describe that Jesus would share in flesh and blood with us so that He can help us and would become like us in every respect so that we have this faithful high priest and merciful high priest. And so, as verse 1 opens here, therefore, understanding who you are, holy brothers, you understand your relationship to Jesus and relationship to God as children and understand this calling that you have. He says in verse 1, I want you to consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest uh, of our confession. So here is Jesus. He in chapter 2 is the one who has made you holy and is bringing you to glorious sons. I want for you to fix your attention on Him. And There's a description here that I would suppose, if you thought about it, you would say, that is a really weird description for Jesus. When you look at verse 1, you'd probably go, okay, I'm all fine with Jesus, our high priest, right? That makes sense. Got that? No problem. But he calls him also the apostle. And that one, you kind of tilt your head a little bit and go, why would you call him the apostle and the high priest of our, our confession? I want you to recognize, and I think if we we dwell long enough, that 
All the apostle idea carries with it is that this is someone who represents the authority of God to deliver a particular message. They are speaking God's words. You might remember Hebrews chapter 1 began that way. That you have in various times and in various ways God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. We have this Son now who has spoken to us. He is the one who is speaking the very words of God. And the idea then of a high priest and of an apostle, both of them stand before God really on our behalf. Here the apostle delivers the message of God. A high priest is the one who stands between us and God. And so you have here this picture again that continues to be emphasized by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus is not someone who is this far away individual who is not able to help. He has delivered the very message of God. You have to love Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that I have the very glory of God on display, and as well offers Himself up as a faithful high priest. That's why He had to become like us in every way, as chapter 2 talked about, that what you have here is a picture of the connection that Jesus has to us. And that's going to be very important to the argument that he presents. So think about Jesus, his connection to us as apostle and as high priest. Verse 2, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. That is a really big statement right there. And it's easy to run over verse 2 and not catch What is going on there in that? When it says there in verse 2 that here is Jesus who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house, that's actually a quotation. And you might recall where that comes from. If you remember back in Numbers chapter 12, a problem arises when they are in the wilderness. Moses marries a Cushite woman. And Miriam and Aaron go, we don't like that. And they begin to speak against Moses. And they begin to criticize Moses. And they say, well, hasn't God spoken to us too? Moses has gone too far. God speaks to us too. We're just as important. They begin to challenge Moses. And remember what happens there in Numbers 12 and verse 5. It reads, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. See the quote. That's what writer of Hebrews is quoting. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, for he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Notice the idea of the quotation to say that Moses is faithful over or faithful in all of God's house is an elevation of Moses. That's what God was doing to Aaron and Miriam. When I speak to prophets, I give them dreams and visions and words. 
Not so with Moses because he's faithful in all of my house. What God is doing is elevating Moses. We've seen that in our Sunday night study that God elevates Moses again and again and again. The idea here is I want you to hold in your mind how glorious Moses was. He was faithful in all of God's house. He's the premier agent of God's revelation. He's the mediator of that covenant. He was the leader of God's people. He interceded on behalf of the people over and over and over again. There is nothing that the writer of Hebrews is doing here to indicate any kind of lessening or denigration. What I want you to see is the writer of Hebrews is putting Moses on the pedestal as high as you can put him. Faithful in all of God's house. He's amazing in the work that he did for God. Now, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses is established as perhaps the greatest. He is faithful in all the house. Aaron, Miriam, who do you think you are talking about him? He is faithful. I speak to him as I speak to no other. And yet even with that glory and even with that elevation, you will notice that the writer of Hebrews says, but I want you to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, that he is worthy of more glory. Why? Well, look at verse 3. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Pretty straightforward logic. The builder of the house has more honor than the house. We even do that when we go see things. You go see something that's built and you go, wow, that's amazing. Who built that? Right? This, this is glorious, but I want to know who the architect is. I want to know who built it because there's greater glory to the one who built it than just simply the house. You go see any landmark or something like that and you go, wow, this is really amazing. Who built that? You go out to California, Hearst Castle. Holy cow. Wow, that's amazing. Who built that? (laughs) It's unbelievable. The size of it. The majesty of it. And that's what's being stated here. Here is Moses who's faithful in the house, but Jesus receives more glory because He is the builder of the house. Now, in college I took logic and I loved syllogisms. And if you took that in high school or college, you'll appreciate a syllogism because you'll notice one is sitting right here. Notice he begins and says, now Jesus is the builder of the house. Now watch verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Did you catch the logic? Jesus built the house. God builds all things. What does that make Jesus? God. There's your syllogism right there. A logical flow through. Jesus is the one who built the house. But guess what? God builds everything. So that must mean there's a reason why Jesus receives more glory. As the builder of the house, He is God Himself. And that's what's being presented here. Is I want you to hold in high regard Jesus. He is worthy of even greater glory than even of Moses. Now, the tendency is for us to stop at this point and go, so see, the whole problem was the writer, the people in the, in the days of the writer of Hebrews, they were all saying that Moses is greater than Jesus. And here's the argument that actually Jesus is greater than Moses. And I have told you from the beginning, 
beginning in our study of Hebrews? No, that's not the problem. That's not the idea. The issue is we are trying to encourage Christians. We are trying to help Christians who are losing faith, who are losing endurance. What does this have to do with that? Just saying Jesus gets more glory than Moses does not help you tomorrow when you are dealing with difficulties and suffering and the problems of being a Christian. So we can't stop here. Notice verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Puts forward something important that we grasp. Alright? As glorious as Moses is, and he is, high pedestal, intercessor for the people, leader of the people, mediator of the covenant, faithful in all of God's house. And as faithful as he is in all of God's house, Moses is a servant in the house. Hold that in your mind. Glorious Moses, servant in the house. Verse 5, or verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Makes sense. He is the son. Moses is the servant. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is the builder of the house and therefore is over the house. Again, but don't stop here because here's what is staggering. Notice here's the big idea to all of this in verse 6. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We're going to spend all our time right there on that sentence. Because that is a staggering declaration that the writer of Hebrews makes. I want you to think about for a minute. It would have been absolutely amazing if the text said, Here is Moses, servant in God's house, highest of glory. God speaks to him like he had spoken to no other in the past. Not like prophets and visions and dreams, but face to face, mouth to mouth. How dare you, Miriam and Aaron, speak any word against him because he is full of glory, because he is faithful in God's house as a servant. And imagine if verse 6 said, and you also are a servant in God's house. I would have went, yes, that is amazing that we get to be servants in God's house. And that's not what he said. I would have been very fine with that. Put me in there with Moses. All right. (laughs) That That would be of greatest honor and greatest joy. Servant in God's house. Faithful as a servant in God's house. I will take that. And I want you to notice that's not what he does. Rather, what he does is he takes it to another level. Look at verse 6 carefully. We are his house. We're not servants. We are in the house. We're the household. We're the children. In the house is what he's pointing out. He doesn't describe us as, now look, you get to be servants also just like Moses. He ups the whole point. 
and makes the point here, then verse verse 5, to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. Everything that God was doing through Moses was pointing to the time when Jesus was going to come and build this house, this family, this household. And He doesn't come along and say, now Jesus comes, He dies, and He successfully builds this house, and you have the right to be a servant. And I'm all in on that if that were what it said. I'd be, thank you, Lord. That's good enough. No, what he does is he says, your son's in the house. You're not a servant in the house. You belong in the house. You get to be heirs of the promise. You are children who have a rightful place within God's house. You have an unbelievable status that is before God. We are not children who are just simply servants in the house as Moses is presented. Not a denigration on Moses. Highest esteem, highest elevation, highest glory. But at the end of the day, he's a servant pointing, testifying, verse 5, to the things that we are enjoying and not that we are enjoying it as servants who serve in God's house, but we get to be Sons and daughters, children of God, heirs of the promise in the house. We belong to the household of God. He's trying to get us to appreciate the staggering relationship and the amazing status that we have before God. What Jesus has done is taken us from a position of being doomed in our sins and not simply to be a servant, but to be a son, to be a child of His. Please think about how Jesus foreshadowed that when He told His parable of lost thieves. And He comes to the lost son that we often call the prodigal son who throws everything away. And remember he says, I'm going to come back to my father and I'm not going to I'm going to say I'm not worthy if I could just be a servant in the house. And what does the father do? You're not going to be a servant in the house, are you kidding me? Kill the fatted calf, put on the robe. You have a rightful place in the house. You're not a servant. You're a child. You belong. You are now entering into that favored, privileged relationship. This is what the writer of Hebrews is highlighting here. And I want us to consider that by laying it out that way, what the writer of Hebrews is simply doing is saying, you have every reason to remain faithful. Do not give up on God. Do not give up on your faith. Do not give up when things get difficult because do you not understand the privileged position you enjoy? You are not like Moses, as glorious as he is, as a servant in the house. You're a child of God. 
Think about how the writer of Hebrews has run that idea together up to this point. That Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. There's that household picture. Here we are, children of God. And we are enjoying all of the rights and privileges and status that could possibly be afforded to children who belong to God. Here is God trying to say to you, do you understand the privileged status that you enjoy? That what Jesus has done has changed everything about our relationship. It's an interesting movement that the Apostle Paul even does in Romans. Because as I read this, the first thing I thought about was in Romans chapter 6, you have the Apostle Paul making the argument, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And that's where I'd be like, see, I'm happy with slaves of God. Put me a servant, I'm good. But don't stop there with what... The Apostle Paul does a little bit later, he then goes on and he's going to tell them, don't you know that what you have become, you're not just simply slaves. You've actually become adopted children of God. Listen to it in Romans chapter eight, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Here, don't you see Paul going, do you understand the status that you are enjoying? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now here, so what? That we are children of God. Why does that matter? And if children... Than heirs. Heirs of God, and notice that sideways, fellow heirs with Christ. Notice that equation being made again with Christ, brothers together with Him. We are sons with status in the house of God, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. I find it fascinating that Paul and the writer of Hebrews draw the very same conclusion. Why is the writer of Hebrews telling you this? So that you will not give up. Do not give up your faith. Do not lose heart. Do not turn back. Do not think that you cannot make it. You can. That's what the, what the Apostle Paul just did with that. You've been adopted. And if you're adopted as sons, you're heirs, heirs of the promise. As long as you do what? Suffer with it. You have to endure. Same points being made. You have to hang on. You have to endure. And notice that's what he does here in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3. Provided we hold fast our confidence and the boasting of our hope. We must hold on to this confidence that we have. Now, if you look at verse 6 for a minute... You might think that sounds also a little bit strange. We are his house, verse 6. We are his household. We belong in God's family. If indeed we hold fast our confidence, I think we're okay with that part, and are boasting in our hope. If we hold fast to the boasting of our hope, what do we mean by that? 
What is he trying to tell us to do with that? I'd like for you to consider, is there a way to boast in the right way? You'll see the Apostle Paul write that way. The writer of Hebrews does similarly. And I want you to just kind of think about that for a minute. How is there a right way to boast? How would there be this calling out? If we indeed hold fast to our confidence and the boasting of our hope. Well, the wrong way of boasting is what? Look at me. It's all about me. I'm amazing. I'm so wonderful. I'm awesome. Everybody pay attention to me. That, of course, is wrong boasting. But what would be good boasting? How about this? Look at what God's done for me. Look at what God has done. I should be lost because of my sins. I should be doomed. I should receive the rightful wrath of God for everything that I've done in my life. I have far too many sins to even begin to believe that I could somehow stand before God and be okay. What ought to be received by every single person is absolutely the wrath of God. There is none righteous, not one. All of sin falls short of glory. What does God do with that? He says, I'll make you children in my house. (laughs) Now, isn't that why we love that parable, the lost son? What do you want to expect the father to do when that prodigal son comes back? You expect the father to shake that guy and go, what was the matter with you? You blew everything. Don't you know who I am? I'm this good father. And you took your inheritance and completely wasted it. Smack him upside the head. What's the matter with you? And the father embraces him and says, hey, let's, let's kill the fatty cow. Let's have a party. Let's put a robe on him. And let's put him back in the house. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Boast in what God has done for you. Do you see what he's done? He hasn't just simply said, okay, you're forgiven. He hasn't just simply said, you can be a servant in the house. You are a child of God. And it's just staggering that God would do that. And we cannot... Underemphasize or overstate or overproclaim how absolutely amazing God's love must be to be willing to do that. Who would you do that to if somebody wronged you left and right, day in and day out, and did everything completely against you, rebelled against you over and over again? And they said, would you please take me back and go, yeah, I'll just give you equal status in the house, no problem. <laughs> Who does that? God does that. That's the picture he's giving here. And what I want us to think about then as we wrap up the lesson is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to do is put our hope in that. Your hope in this life must be squarely fixed on the fact that you are in God's house as His child. 
That is supposed to be your life hope. That is to be your glory, your boasting, your confidence, your joy. That's supposed to be your everything. This is what God has done for me. And what happens is, and I believe why the writer of Hebrews has put his finger on this, is because the reason we lose confidence and the reason we lose faith and we lose our hope and we lose this endurance is because we end up putting our hope on the things that we can see. We start putting our hope in this life. We start putting our hope in our jobs, in our wealth, in our families, in our parents, in our children, in everything else in this world. And what happens every single time we do that? We're let down. Always, always, always. (laughs) It always lets you down. The brand new toy you bought, it will break. It will let you down. The human you're putting all your hope in, they're going to let you down. Why? Because they're human. I'm going to let you down. You're going to let me down. There's only one person we can put our hope in. That's God. That's supposed to be the truth. The reason we give up is because of the failures of everything else and everyone else. And here is the writer of Hebrews saying, I want you to focus on the one thing that absolutely cannot be taken away from you. You are a child of God and there is nothing anybody can do about that. Nobody can take that away from you. This is what Paul is doing when we get to Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can persecution, can tribulation, can fill in the blank, can death? No. You see, but as soon as we put our boasting, our hope, and our joy in anything else but what God has done for us, then when that gets eroded, we lose heart. We stumble. Or we become shaken. When you have Job, this whole other window into heaven, of here's God and here's Satan, and we're talking about Job. See, there's Job, my servant. It's none like him. He's righteous, blameless. And I want you to think about how the challenge that Satan puts down is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with. If Job had put his hope in anything physical and tangible, what would have happened when Satan took everything away from him? He would have quit. Might have listened to his wife, curse God and die. What's the point of this? What is the point of being righteous if we're going to lose absolutely everything? If all of my wealth is stripped away, all my children are killed, and all that I have left is a wife who tells me to curse God and die, and she finds me loathsome, and then I have three friends who think I'm a sinner, and they're not helping any. Oh, and by the way, I have boils from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. What are you going to do if your hope is in anything else? But God. That's what makes it so amazing that Job says, 
naked I came to this world. Naked I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you bow down and worship God. How do you get there? How are you able to endure like that? Because you have your hope in only one thing. You're a child of God. And if your hope is in your car, you will be broken when your car breaks. And if your hope is in your job, then you're going to be broken when your job fires you. And if your hope is in success and promotion, then you're going to be broken when you get passed over again and again and again. And if your hope is where you live, then you're going to be broken when you can't live there anymore. And if your hope is in your kids, what will happen if something happens to your children? And if your hope is in your spouse, what will happen if your if your something happens to your spouse? And if your hope is in your parents, what will happen when you lose your parents? You see the point? There's only one thing that will not be temporary. God. And what God is saying is put your hope in what I've done for you. I've taken you from slaves of sin. And I've made you even greater than Moses. I can barely say those words. That's why I froze for me. Because it's just like, that's just still staggering. Because Moses is faithful as a servant in the house. You and I are children who rightfully belong in the house. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Put your hope in that because that's what matters most. That's where endurance comes from. Endurance comes from knowing that God has taken you and placed you in His house as a rightful heir of promise. And you continue to be faithful Hold to the confidence you have and hold on to the boasting of your hope. It's not boasting in me, but look at what God has done. Look at what God has accomplished. Look at what He's done to my life. Look how He's changed my life. And God says, you're going to enjoy all the benefits and privileges of what it means to be a child of God. You're going to enjoy every single blessing that comes from that. Do not give up. Don't quit now. Friends, you're almost there. Don't quit now. Do not give up that faith. And press on as children of God. Our invitation to you this morning is to call for you to consider where you are with God. If you are not a child of God, all I can tell you is you are missing out on something so special. You have a relationship that God is extending to you. You do not have to receive wrath, nor do you have to be merely servants. You can be a child of God and enjoy all the privileges and enjoy solidarity with Christ and all that comes with that. But it is a call to turn away from self. Can't do what we want to do. We're children of God now. We're not children of sin. We're not following our own devices. We're not following our own will. We're following God's will. And we want to do that because He has made us children in the house. 
We beg you, if that's your condition, that you would turn away from sin and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to enter into that relationship with him. If you're a child of God, but you've put your hope in something else, I really would like for you to be introspective today and really consider why putting your hope and your boasting and your confidence in anything else but the relationship that God has with you is temporary and useless. It will not give you joy. It will not give you satisfaction. It will not give you hope. We get these temporary bursts of it and then we're let down to move your hope and your confidence back squarely upon Jesus who has brought you into a relationship with him. Can we help you? Won't you come while we stand and we'll be singing?